Thank you, Pastor Dan, for that introduction. I am so excited to be here with you all. Over the years, I've been a huge fan of Christ Central. Pastor Harold is a, a dear friend of mine, and I've always been so encouraged by his, his wisdom, his wittiness, but especially his love for the gospel. Um, and before I met Pastor Harold many years ago, I actually met uh, Pastor Jimmy Hahn when I was a graduating senior of high school and had the privilege of going on a mission trip with him to Kenya. And way back then, I remember saying to myself, I wish I can grow up to be like Pastor Jimmy. Um, and uh, that bromance was there. And so, I, and, and, and not only that, but I, I discovered that two of your elders are actually former members of my church. And so there's so many ways that we're tied together. Well, at the risk of losing my man card even more, um, I'd like to share that I'm a sucker for a good old-fashioned love story. Um, back in high school, a lot of my friends loved to listen to, to rap or Kiss FM or K-Rock. My favorite radio station was Coast, 103.5. Um, some of my favorite movies were the Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks movies, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail. And then later on, America's favorite couple was replaced by Adam Sandler and Drew Bar Barrymore. Uh, recently, I saw Slumdog Millionaire on the plane and really appreciated that movie. There's something about love stories that I think really draws out the deep longings of the human heart. It's that longing to find true love, to find someone you could pour your heart into and to have that person reciprocate that same love. I'll never forget walking down uh, a, a grand hotel lobby. My daughter is 15 years old right now, but back then she was only three. Uh, I think it was like a five-star hotel, marble floors, grand columns, and we're walking hand in hand, and she stopped and tugged at me and said, Daddy, I want to get married here when I grow up. And I turned in disbelief you're only three years old, and you're planning your wedding. No more Disney movies for you. <laughs> well, if you like romances, then you're going to love this episode of the Bible. Because in our passage, we have perhaps one of the most romantic passages found in all of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn or swipe with me to Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 20. It's somewhat of a lengthy reading, and so bear with me, uh, but it's important that we hear the whole story. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. 
While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, I'm going to divide my sermon into three parts. We're going to look at this passage about Jacob's encounter with Rachel from three uh, different vantage points. We're going to start with an up-close analysis of what's going on, and then from there, we're going to gradually take steps backward and look at it as we zoom out. But before we take, up a, 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 take a close-up view of our passage, let me give you a little background here of what's going on. Right now in Jacob's life, we probably find him at the lowest point of his life. You see, Jacob was a man of privilege. He grew up in a very wealthy, uh, rich family. He was very domesticated and had servants doing his bidding, probably slept in a, in a very a royal home. But right now, he is 500 miles away from home. Why? Because he swindled his brother and his father, stole his blessing, and now his twin brother Esau wants him dead. And so he quickly had to gather his belongings and run. But the reason why he finds himself in Haran, 500 miles away, is because his parents said, flee to Haran because we have family there. Uh, your uncle Laban is there, and if you find safety with him, perhaps you can find a wife there. And so he finds himself far from home, and I don't know how long it's been since he slept in a bed or seen a friendly face, but he is ragged and tired, beat up. And that's where we find him here. And to his great joy and delight, he sees civilization. He runs into some shepherds who are waiting at a well. He asks them, where are we? Where is this place? And to his joy and delight, they say, we're, we're in Haran. And he proceeds to ask them, well, do you happen to know my uncle Laban? And they said, yes, we know your uncle. And so he asks, well, is it well with him? Is he still alive? Are, are they well off? Do you think they'll take in someone like me? 
You can kind of hear their annoyance when they finally say, well, why don't you just ask him yourself? His daughter, Rachel, is coming here. And at this point, if this was a movie, you can probably cue the music because Jacob is about to meet his future bride. I can imagine everything going in slow motion as he sets his eyes on the distant hill and sees the figure of a girl coming towards him. Now at this point, the shepherds are no longer helpful but a nuisance because Jacob wants to be alone when he meets Rachel. And so in verse 7, he tells the shepherds, you know, it's kind of hot here, not good for your sheep. Why don't you quickly water them and get out of my way? He's like the older brother who gives his younger brother a five and says, hurry up, leave. My girlfriend is here. To his disappointment, the shepherds tell him, well, that's not the way things work around here. You see, the only time we water the sheep is when everyone is gathered, and then we water the sheep together. Quickly, Jacob forgets the shepherds because Rachel appears One look at her and he is smitten. Verse 17 tells us that Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. In other words, she had a beautiful face and a hot body. She's every man's dream girl. And as if that weren't enough, she's a shepherdess. She's not some stuck-up, entitled princess who expects everyone to serve her. She's a hard-working girl who takes care of herself and her family. Talk about a total package. All of a sudden, the blisters on his feet no longer burned. The sunburn on his face no longer stung. The 500 miles to get there totally worth it. Without even thinking, Jacob demonstrates his chivalry and brawn by removing the huge stone that covered the well all by himself. Isn't it funny what guys are willing to do to get the attention of a pretty girl? Jacob then proceeds to do two things. Verse 11 tells us, that he kisses Rachel, which was customary back then for family when they meet together. But the second thing he does is not so customary. He proceeds to weep aloud. In other words, he cries an ugly cry. Why? Perhaps because of tears of relief and sheer joy. Rachel then brings Jacob home and introduces him to her father, Laban. Laban discovers that Jacob is family, takes him in, and after about a month or so, he says, you know what, I shouldn't treat you like one of my slaves, you're a relative, tell me, I could use a good shepherd around here, how much would you like to receive as your wage? But to everyone's surprise, Jacob says, you don't have to pay me a nickel. All I ask for is your daughter's hand in marriage. I will work for you for free for seven years if you give me Rachel's hand. Laban agrees. And then in perhaps the most romantic verse found in all of scripture, verse 20 reads, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Seven years of manual labor out in the sun were but a few days to Jacob because of his great love for Rachel. 
when I preached this sermon uh, a few weeks ago at my church, I saw some of the wives elbowing their husbands, right? Man, look at Jacob, seven years of service, and you can't even take out the trash without complaining. And so with this close-up view of Genesis 29, what we have here is this very romantic telling of Jacob's love for Rachel. But is there more to this passage than simply an example of love at first sight? I believe there is. This is where we need to kind of take a step backwards and look at our passage, not simply in isolation, but in its greater context. Because you see, if you take a step backward and look at Genesis 29 in light of all of Genesis, something will strike you. What's striking is that Jacob's encounter with Rachel at the well sounds eerily familiar to something that happens in Genesis 24. Because you see, in Genesis 24, Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac, Abraham's son. He tells his servant, I want you to go out from here and find a wife for my son, Isaac. And so this servant goes out, and where do we find him? He's at a well. And as he's sitting at this well, he offers up a prayer to God saying, God, of all the girls that come to this well, may the one girl who offers me and my camel's water be that chosen wife for your servant Isaac. Lo and behold, a bunch of women go to the well to water their animals, and Rebekah offers water to this foreigner, offers water to this servant and her animals. And at this point, the servant says, she must be the one. And he inquires, who are you? And she says, I am the son of Bethuel, and I'm also the sister of Laban. Yes, the same Laban who is Rachel's father. The servant then goes home to meet uh, Rebecca's family. Rebecca's family talk to the servant. They negotiate and they agree to the marriage. And so when you take a step back and compare 24 with Genesis 29, you see all kinds of parallels. You see how Isaac finds his wife at a well, and you see how Jacob finds his wife at a well. And I believe God sets this up for a reason. He wants us to compare the two passages. Because when you compare the two passages, you learn a couple things when it comes to love and relationships. When you compare the two passages, you'll see that in both scenes, the suitors, the men, are drawn to beauty. They're drawn to women who are attractive in their own rights. In Genesis 24, what makes Rebecca attractive is her inner beauty. She alone offers water to this foreigner. She alone does the work to, to water his animals. And then in Genesis 29, we know that what makes Rachel attractive is her outer beauty, 
And what accentuates her outer beauty is that in the same verse that we're told that she's beautiful in form and appearance, we're also told that she has a sister who was deformed in her eyes. She wasn't pretty. She was ugly. And in the very next verse, we're not surprised to read, and Jacob loved Rachel. So you can see, guys haven't changed much over the years. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my son uh, back when he was seven years old, and I thought it'd be fun to just ask him, Seth, um, uh, what kind of girl do you want to marry? And remember, he just looked at me in all seriousness, Dad, I haven't done any planning. And I started to chuckle, and I said, well, you know, what are three traits you'd like to see in your future wife? And he looked at me, and without missing a beat, he said, Dad, she just has to be pretty. That's all. And he scampered away. Uh, I love his honesty. All this to prove the point that when it comes to love, we're attracted to beauty, whether it be external or internal. And of course, uh, the same principle applies today. We all have our own virtues that we look for in a spouse. We all have our own criteria, our check boxes. He or she must have a good sense of humor, must love their parents well, must have a, a good financial job, must graduate from a certain school. We all have our virtues that are attractive to us. But something else emerges, too, when you compare the two chapters. In addition to seeing men who are looking and drawn to beauty, in both chapters you see a great price being paid for that marriage to happen. In chapter 24, when Abraham sends out his servant, he doesn't send out his servant alone. He sends him out with 10 camels, a box of gold coins, bracelets, and rings. Why? Because he knew that if his servant was going to find a wife for Isaac, he would have to have the means to offer up a dowry. Because back then, a woman's uh, uh, hand had to be secured with a dowry. And so Rebecca doesn't come free. Only after the servant offers up the camels and the gold and the wealth do Rebecca's family agree to the marriage. In chapter 29, it's a little bit different. Why? Because Jacob comes empty-handed. He didn't have enough time to secure all of his possessions. He had to run quickly. But this explains why he offers seven years of service. That was his way of offering up a dowry. And what's interesting is that scholars uh, compute the average wage uh, a shepherd would receive in a year and calculated that Jacob's seven years would have far exceeded the average dowry of his day. Why does he offer up more than necessary? Well, because Rachel wasn't an ordinary girl. She was an extraordinary girl when it comes to physical beauty. And we see, again, similar principles played out today in our culture. We may not offer up dowries uh, in order to get married, but we have something similar. We have engagement rings, right? To this day, it's the most expensive gift I've ever bought my wife, 
The engagement ring is expensive. Why? Because in, in proposing, the suitor is trying to communicate, I'm really serious about this proposal. I really want to marry you. And so in both passages, we see attractive women being pursued. In both passages, we see a great price being paid. Now at this point, I want us to take one more step back. And now look at Genesis 29 in light of the rest of Scripture. Because remember, there's one author over the Bible, and that's God. In John chapter 4, Jesus finds himself at a well. Let me read verses 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that who? Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. If you were a well-read Jew and you heard the words, Jacob's well, what are you going to be thinking of? Genesis 29. And so here is Jesus, much like Jacob, far from home, sitting at a well. Just as Abraham's servant sat at a well, both Isaac finds his wife, Jacob finds his wife by sitting at a well. And so naturally, what are we thinking next? What are we anticipating? We're anticipating Jesus to meet his future bride. And I can imagine all the angels in heaven peering down, wondering who's going to be the lucky girl. Because I think there's no argument here that Jesus was the most eligible bachelor to ever walk this earth. Who will he choose? He could choose anyone. Let me read the rest of this passage. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus' choice of a bride, the one he gives the rose to, stuns us, shocks our earthly sensibilities. It's 
scandalous who he chooses because he chooses not only a non-Jew, a Samaritan woman, but he chooses a Samaritan who's been married five times and is currently sleeping with another man who's not her husband. He pursues the most detested, despised, discarded woman he could find. It's safe to say that this woman probably liked to sleep around. It's safe to say that she probably had very little respect for herself. Parents, how many of you, how would you react if your son or daughter came home with someone who's been married five times and says, we're going to get married? You'd be like, no way. I don't even need to spend time with this person. If he or she's been married five times, there's something wrong with him or her. This explains why this woman comes to the well at noon when it's hot. Why? Because no one goes to the well when it's hot. You go at daybreak. You go when the sun is starting to set. Remember, they're in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. But she goes at noon. Why? So she can be alone. Because she's tired of the whispering. She's tired of the judgmental eyes. She's tired of the gossip. But to her surprise, Jesus is there waiting for her. To her surprise, Jesus is there pursuing her. Jesus' choice of a bride stuns everyone. It stuns the disciples. It stuns even the woman. And right off the bat, what Jesus is declaring loud and clear that is, is the fact that when it comes to God's love, his standards, his criteria, his checkboxes are completely different from our own. Jacob, the servant, they look for outward beauty, inner beauty. That's what they're attracted to. So the Samaritan woman, what does she have to offer? Here we see that what grabs God's attention what turns his head is not when we trophy up how good we've been, how faithful we are. Look at how long I've prayed. Look at how much I give. Look at how much I tithe. Look at my generosity, my kindness, Lord. Look at my devotion to you. That's not what grabs God's attention. Rather, what attracts God, what makes us lovely to him is when we trophy our brokenness, when we admit our sinfulness and confess our desperate need for a savior. And yet what makes Jesus' love all the more extraordinary is not only what attracts him, but the price he was willing to pay. Remember, every woman's heart must be secured with a price. But to secure the Samaritan woman, it would require more than just great wealth. It would require more than just seven years of labor. Why? 
because Jesus wanted something greater than earthly love, earthly marriage. He wanted to be united to her for eternity. And in order for that to happen, he knew that the only way he could secure her hand was if he, if he were to spill his own blood, is if he were to be stretched out on a cross and suspended in the air, naked, humiliating, bearing the wrath of God for all of our sins, including the Samaritan woman's unfaithfulness, lewdness, and sexual brokenness, to be Wed to this woman, he'd have to pay the ultimate price. He'd have to lay down his life. And what makes this even more extraordinary is that just as much as it was only but a few days for Jacob to serve those seven years, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. For Jesus to pursue the Samaritan woman, to give up his life, was a joy for him. He'd do it all over again. He'd do it even if she was the only one who would go to heaven with him. As you can see, dear friends, Genesis 29 is more than just a cute love story between Jacob and Rachel. But ultimately, Genesis 29 is God's way of declaring to you and to me how great his love is for us. Jacob's love, as great as it was, pales in comparison to his great love for you and me. And this is good news. Especially if this morning you feel somewhat unlovable. If you feel distant from God, if your conscience is accusing you, if you're weighed down by guilt and shame, if you, like the Samaritan woman, kind of want to just be alone, discouraged, defeated. Just two days ago on Friday, my boys got into it. They're 13 and 11, share the same room. We were on vacation for seven days where we're all stuck together. And they were screaming, yelling, hating one another in the middle of the night. So me and my wife enter in, try to find out what's going on. It's already 12.30, super tired, and we're like, you know what? It's too, we're, we're too tired, let's just continue tomorrow. And then my courageous daughter, my oldest, comes in and says, Mom, Dad, we never resolve anything. We never talk it out. Let's talk it out. And so I said, okay, let's talk. What happened? For the next hour and a half, each kid is crying and sharing their deepest hurts and pains of what it's like to live in our family. 
They proceed to unload hurt after hurt. This is what you've done to me. Dad, this is what I don't appreciate about you. And believe me, it was hard as we were unloading all of our dysfunction at each other's feet. And I wish I could tell you that we wrapped up with forgiveness and reconciliation and we all sang kumbaya together. No, we ran out of time. It was just, there wasn't enough time. And so I can tell you this whole weekend, it's hanging over my head how broken my family is. And perhaps you can relate You find yourself sitting at a well, a well of disappointment, discouragement, despair. Well, Jesus comes to us this morning, and he's telling all of us that those who are most eligible to his love are those who feel defeated broken and discouraged, that those he pursues with his immense love are those who feel like they're on the outskirts of God's kingdom. And so this morning, it is my prayer that whether you are happily married or unhappily married, whether you're happily single or unhappily single, that we would all turn our attention to a love, as we sang earlier, that is greater than life. And as we cling less and less unto ourselves and more and more unto him, as we find our lives in him and in what he has done for us, we would find healing, we would find wholeness, we would find peace. And as we rest and relish in that great love, God would then move us and propel us to seek and save the Samaritan womans of this world and share that same great love with them. Let's pray together. Father, your love is unlike any love we have ever known or seen in this world. Who you're attracted to, what gets your attention is contrary to what gets our attention, contrary to to what draws us. Oh God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in the gospel, the layers of this world can be loved like Rachel. We thank you that in the gospel, all of our brokenness, all of our ugliness, all of our our sins and failures are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are made attractive brides and the recipients of the greatest love we could ever possibly want or imagine. And so we pray that you would fill us and meet us at our wells, however discouraged or defeated we may be, and that you would enable us to drink from your well, life-giving water, and find wholeness and peace in you. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.